welcome to another episode of Anything But Square. My name is Xavier Zar, CEO of Federation Square. Today, I'm joined by Katrina Sedgwick, OAM, Director and CEO of the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Welcome, Katrina. Hi. Nice to be here, Xavier. Thanks for joining us uh, on this well, uh, auspicious day for a range of reasons uh, that'll become relevant. Um, it's 35 years today since Paul Rubens gave us Pee Wee Herman. Where were you when you first saw it? I can't believe it's 35 years. That's <laughs> amazing and kind of shocking. Well, I was, you know, a lady doesn't want to give away her age, but I will. I was 17 when that came out and I was a performer at that stage in fact I was a I was doing a lot of theatre and street theatre and clowning at that point um, and I was doing TV as well I was um, doing a sort of comedy magazine show on um, for kids on Saturday mornings so you know when, when that movie came out it was a huge source of excitement to me and the sort of broader gang of performers and the motley crew that I used to hang out with in Adelaide at that time we all absolutely adored it of course I mean it's brilliant he's a genius and and he's he is the true epitome of what clowning is you know that the vulnerability and the eccentricity and the the sort of complete commitment to taking performance right to the edge is exactly what clowning is about and um yeah I mean I just I loved that film well it's um it's a significant film for a whole lot of reasons. I can remember going to uh, the Valhalla when it was in Victoria Street, Richmond, and uh, having to get permission to um, take the train in from the suburbs at the time. And the tie in my mind to, to ACME is that it was at ACME, actually, uh, during your school holiday screenings that my wife and I were able to introduce our children to Pee Wee Herman. Uh, you had an anthology, and this is going back maybe five or six, possibly seven years ago, which uh, just just filled my kids with delight. It's still a source of reference. <laughs> it's still a source of um, of you know of of, of jokes uh, among my kids. That's for me just one element of Acme. Tell me, what's your vision for Acme? Well, I I suppose you know Acme is this kind of remarkable place you know it's it's uh, unique really in the world for breadth of what it does it's it was initially established you know as fed square was created um, and opened in 2002 acme was one of the sort of foundation cultural tenants and it had been sort of conceived as as a museum of the or a center of the moving image at that time and it was a place that was very much looking at how artists engaged and explored uh, all the different sort of forms of the moving image. Um, it had an exhibition program and, of course, those beautiful cinemas that you that you took your family to, Xavier. And it was a place, a lot of kind of laboratories were there and different kind of workshops and a, a lot of place where there was a lot of kind of digital learning, which at that time was quite groundbreaking, I suppose. And in the intervening sort of 18 years, we've had such a astonishing sort of shift in how we consume the moving image you know nowadays we have these incredibly powerful smart phones in our pockets which are you know devices that enable us to consume moving image to create moving image and to distribute moving image so what used to be a sort of a rarefied form that required a lot of budget to be able to 
to create anything now has become a very kind of democratised form, um, one that is accessible to all sorts of people. And I think every new platform that artists can get their hands on is a is a place for experimentation and exploration and sort of hacking, if you like, uh, what, a, what a technological tool can enable for them to tell their stories. And ever since film was invented, you know, back in 1896, artists have been exploring the form. Um, but as it's become more and more affordable um, and as the different kind of technologies around it have proliferated, there's just this extraordinary kind of creativity that's that's alive in there from, you know, experimental video art, virtual reality, video games, um, auteur filmmakers through to blockbuster entertainment. And, you know, I suppose the vision I've got for ACME is around creating a museum that really celebrates the interconnections between all of those different forms because in the end, for the public, they're all content. They're all stuff that we engage with. And uh, what I'm fascinated uh, with, you know, across my experience in the arts, um, I've been working in the arts all of my life, I'm really interested in how, you know, an audience member can enter through one door and discover something and that they know it's the kind of hook in, whatever that might be, and then exit having discovered something utterly new, a new way of telling a story, a, a new artistic approach, and a new voice, a new culture. And the moving image is so accessible and it's so portable in the way that you that you present it. You know, it's not like an artist who paints a single painting that exists only in the one space at the one time. You know, film is designed to be repeatable and distributed widely. And I think that that means it's, it's absolutely fascinating for, for the public to be able to come in and see all sorts of different work juxtaposed together. Um, stuff that they're very familiar with, stuff that they have never seen or considered before. They're able to explore that, share that, talk about that in a very kind of democratic and open way. You talk about Acme as a museum and I suppose, uh, you know, the, the moving image, which you describe as, you know, hypercurrent, you know, fast changing, defined by technology. Um, and also reflective and defined by societal developments, you know, in real time. I mean, every day, every version, <laughs> every new technology uh, and application changes what you study and what you collect and what you protect and how you relate it back to the public. What is being a museum like when what you deal with is just so changeable? Well, it's an interesting challenge and it, you know, of course, being a museum, and we, we have a collection, so we hold the, the Victorian State Archive and there's about a quarter of a million objects in that collection that, that, that we care for and preserve. And I think that's a very important act for any museum is that act of preservation, that, that caring for our, our collective memory and in our case, you know, helping care for our audiovisual memory. But you're right. I mean, for us, it's not just about telling the past and the kind of present of the moving image. It's also being very alive to the near future. And how do, how do we reflect that in a responsive and meaningful and dynamic way? And I think, 
it means that you've got to create a space, and this is a lot to do with what our um, our current big $40 million renewal project is about, is creating a museum that can be responsive and that can evolve. The previous permanent exhibition that we had, um, it was called Screen Worlds. We closed it after nearly 10 years of presenting this exhibition, which was, you know, telling a story from pre-cinema right through to the present day. And in that case, the present day was 2009. And, you know, we updated a bit, but the the issue was that the exhibition was designed, as most exhibitions are, to be the same. You curate it, you build it, and there it goes. It stays there. Now, when you're trying to tell a story of the moving image, that becomes incredibly challenging because, as you say, it is constantly evolving. There are new voices. There are new stories to tell. That is not to say that you abrogate your responsibility to explore the history, to explore our past, and people are fascinated by that. They want to know where it's come from. And there are wonderful stories about our, about our history, like, you know, Pee Wee Herman from 35 years ago. But you've got to set up a, a, a space, a, a series of, you know, a kind of structure that enables you to respond to things and to be able to show that evolution and also to anticipate what might be next. So I think, you know, we've been very much thinking about our museum as a place of cinemas, galleries and laboratories. And, and those spaces all intersect and they all need to speak to each other, to evolve. Um, we've created a, a sort of bespoke operating system that sort of sits underneath our entire museum, which we call XOS. It's the experience operating system. And it's a, it's a, piece of technology that enables us to pull um, information and data from right across different parts of our museum. So from our collection system, we can take, you know, a piece of media and deploy it into our galleries on five minutes notice. I mean, that's just extraordinary. Something that used to take us two weeks, we can do in 10 minutes. You know, it, it's just, it's fascinating. So being able to use these kind of digital tools to to create something that is is far more reactive, responsive, that evolves um, and changes. And I think in our business, that's absolutely critical. Otherwise, we become irrelevant. Well, I mean, you're, you're reflecting, I think, a trend, which is um, the, the constant turnover and representation and presentation of new material all the time. And I can't think of a, a more fitting setting than Acme that can turn on a dime and have something new for its visitors whenever they come. But we'll come back to that later because there is time to talk about the renewal and we want to go deep there. But before we get on to that, I want to stay on the subject a little longer. Museums, you are entrenched, established, you are a museum, but museums aren't just places for visitation. Um, and to look at the past. They're also a place for scholarship. You know, their collections and their expertise allows you to harvest, you know, new insights and, and share new information. How does ACME fulfil that role? So as I say, we've got a, a, a really beautiful collection, you know, 120 years old in terms of the objects that are in it. And that's, you know, a very specific collection. There's obviously the National Film and Sound Archive that fulfills a national purpose. Ours is very much a state collection um, and it's got, you know, a huge range of materials in it that we care for and share and research around. And we've always had a, a kind of rich series of relationships with, with different um, research partners. Currently, um, we've got a for two fantastic partnerships, one with RMIT and one with Swinburne, who work with us across different areas of the museum. And through that, we're, we're working on two um, ARCs, Australian Research Council grants at the moment. One of them is picking up on a previous 
uh, ARC that we did with the uh, universities, um, which looked at the the sort of history of video games in Australia through the 1980s. And we were actually incredibly innovative at that time, quite, quite groundbreaking. In fact, out of Melbourne, The Hobbit game, I don't know if you remember that, The Hobbit, which used to play on Commodore 64. It was the first game that entered my home um, as a child and that that was uh, designed and created here in Melbourne and uh, we actually house uh, the most significant uh, collection of 1980s video games um, from Australia anywhere and thank goodness we do because it's taken a long time I think for cultural institutions to understand how important a piece of not just popular culture but but living culture and um, creativity and now economic impact um, video games was going to be. And, of course, now the video games industry globally is bigger than film and television combined. It's enormous. So we, we did a, a great research project around our 80s games collection. We're now doing another one um, around our 90s uh, collection of games. And as part of that, um, we're going to uh, have emulation as a service, and that's a where you're able to uh, emulate the game in digital code out of its previous platforms. So you can imagine one of the other kind of big challenges in film is about redundant formats. Uh, you know, thankfully, we still have some 35 um, millimeter film, celluloid film made, but, you know, we've moved now to digital. Um, but, of course, you consider all the different other formats. I mean, 8 millimeter, 16 millimeter, 35, 70 um, but, of course, then tape formats, Vita, VHS, UHS, you know, so many different kinds. Then you get onto things like CD-ROMs and then all the different other sorts of uh, formats that people have used to store their digital code and their moving image work. So, yeah, absolutely fascinating. So, so the emulation service that we've got is going to enable us to take those video games out of redundant formats and make them accessible again. So I think that's a really exciting project. And indeed, we've, we've just started a, a new partnership that is, uh, again, quite groundbreaking. And it's with the National Film and Sand Archive and MAS, which is the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences in Sydney. They have the Powerhouse Museum, the Observatory and a range of other um, museums. And they collect sort of games hardware if you like and ephemera and you know things around games we collect the actual games themselves the code um, and now the national film and sound archive have decided that they are going to move into collection of games which is just fantastic and we've just signed a, a tripartite agreement to make sure that we are able to build a collection of, of australian video games of value between the three organisations rather than individually repeating each one. So, you know, that's an example, but we have a whole range of, of different um, partnerships. We've just signed a, a major um, partnership with the Deutsche uh, Film Forum, which is in Frankfurt, and we've been funded about 800,000 euros to work with them to uh, take a piece of technology that we're developing for the renewal and do the next iteration of that with them um, over the next four years. So, yeah, it's a super exciting space to be in. There's so much, so much kind of research opportunity with our tertiary partners and beyond. Um, it is such a rapidly evolving space that is so all-pervasive in our lives. I mean, moving image, you could argue, is now <laughs> the dominant form for us all and, you know, the research opportunity is, is limitless.
Well, you know, it's been said if Da Vinci were alive today, it would be digital and projected um, and popular <laughs> with a rich patron, probably from the tech sector. But uh, you describe, um, you know, a vast collection that's one of your roles. What's the quirkiest? What's the, you know, what's your version of the wood of the cross in your collection of bits and pieces from the moving image? Look, there's quite a bit of strange stuff in there. There's a film which we watch but with kind of horror and delight at the same time, which is a film of a machine that was devised to milk mice. And that is uh, quite challenging and strange, um, it has to be said. But I think one of my favourite things in our collection is this bizarre film made in 1969 by Fred Skepsey. Now, Many of you would know, Fred Skepsey is one of Australia's greatest filmmakers. He has had an incredible career in Australia and internationally. So he made, for example, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith uh, and Devil's Playground, which were two hugely important um, films. Went overseas, made films like The Russia House, Roxanne, Six Degrees of Separation and so on and so forth. I mean, he's a, a really brilliant filmmaker, but early in his career, <laughs> He um, made this small commercial film for the Australian Dried Fruits Association, and it's called A Hundred Odd Years From Now, and it is this utterly bizarre short film where they look into this sort of future run by women and machines. It is absolutely hilarious, and it is, it's, it's this very kind of gender-biased view of the future, and it is so bizarre and very funny. Acme, you know, um, the first letter, Australian, such an intrinsically um, Australian, not just Victorian institution, Indigenous, I guess, um, established to collect, protect and exhibit Australian content. And I'd like to think as CEO here at FedSquare, that's a, a recurrent theme for our resident cultural institutions. NGVA is, of course, Australian content. Uh, with um, the nation's largest Indigenous um, art collection, KHT, Koori Heritage Trust. You know, at its core, it's it's about not just First Nations, but but Koori people, history, storytelling, and interpretation. Um, again, a recurrent theme of strong Indigenous content or Australian expression, or both. With that in mind, how would you describe Acme's First Nation collection? Um, and work. You touched on it earlier, but I'd like to unpack it a bit more. We don't have a significant uh, Indigenous collection and for audiovisual material that principally lies with the National Film and Sound Archive. We do, of course, tell elements of the story of Indigenous voices um, and practitioners through the screen. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, in 2009, when we opened, there were some, it was sort of just beginning to see what has been an incredible um, impact on the national screen industry. So 2009, that's like a decade ago, the Indigenous unit uh, at Screen Australia has just celebrated 25 years and that has been probably one of the most successful government-funded programs in terms of identifying talent and supporting them over a long-term period with just extraordinary results. And those results were just beginning to sort of flourish. So Warwick Thornton, for example, who is one of our most important filmmakers, but is an Indigenous man, a proud Indigenous man, 10, ten years into that program, he was really just hitting his, his stride. And I think Samson and Delilah came out in 2009. And 
since then, there's just been this explosion of Indigenous talent and making incredibly successful um, film and television uh, in Australia, let alone um, the the video artists um, working in that space. So um, we've shown a lot of work. I think what's changed in this uh, new iteration of our permanent exhibition is the work that our Indigenous curators and our Indigenous advisory group have done, which has been to sort of really create a kind of rich spine that in a way contextualises the entire entirety of the REST exhibition through an Indigenous prism. And I think that that's uh, a radical shift for us and one that, um, you know, as the Australian Centre for the Moving Image is, is super important. So the Australian section, which is in the heart of our exhibition now, um, is literally wrapped uh, in a commissioned work that talks about self-representation. So rather than films about Aboriginal people, these are films made by Aboriginal people. And this kind of sense of self-representation is absolutely brought to life through all of the different works that, that we highlight. We've commissioned a, a number of um, artworks and short films, which will be showcased permanently um, in the exhibition. And I think that's just such a significant shift for a museum of our kind and a and an absolutely fundamental and important one. I should just add, in those glorious days, Xavier, when we had lots and lots of international tourists, the most asked question is, have you got anything by Indigenous artists? Well, there's there, there's an awareness and there's an appetite, and that's a good thing, and our role is to move forward and, and fill that in its various ways. Beyond First Nations you know, content and subject matter and eyes, are uh, First Nations or Indigenous filmmakers impacting or influencing modern cinema and, and screen culture? Are there themes coming out? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And some of the most influential films of the last sort of 15 years have been by Indigenous practitioners, no question. And same in, in moving image art and, and visual art across the board. Um, I'm sure Tony and, and Tom have waxed eloquently uh, on this same subject matter. But absolutely, I mean, the shift that we've seen in Aboriginal voices telling their stories through film and television over the last 15 years is is astonishing. I don't know if it's replicated anywhere else in the world in terms of a First Nations people impacting so powerfully and so quickly at a particular time. Um, this is not to say that there hadn't been a long, long history of incredible people um, working and, and breaking ground. But, you know, there's just been this astonishing kind of flourishing. It's like a kind of, you know, uh, an avalanche almost of momentum, of talent. And, yes, I mean, they're our leading, you know, amongst our absolutely leading filmmakers. Oh, so it's, it's, it's really exciting and inspiring to see. And, uh, you know, we, we will be continuing to showcase those stories. And I think it's been helped for us too. Um, we've had Rachel Mazza, uh, who is a well-known theatre actor, film actor, and, and now runs Obidgery Theatre Company um, on our board for three years, and she's been part of the uh, Indigenous Advisory Group. And also uh, Darren Dale has, has joined our board. Um, who, with Rachel Perkins, um, who many people would know, um, they run Blackfellow Films, which is, again, a very, very influential and important production company based in Sydney. Um, and I think having a, both of their input 
as we've as we've been evolving over the last few years and into the future is is absolutely critical. So from where you're sitting at ACME, what are some of the exciting themes and techniques that are coming through modern cinema and digital culture? I think that's a fascinating time. As I, as I said, you know, the, the sort of democratisation of technology is super interesting. Being able to access camera equipment, which previously used to be the sort of domain of, of you know, the, the, the Hollywood film and the, the auteur and so on and the studio um, has now been so democratised. And, you know, I mean, one, one of the um, ABC series that, that is on um, iview at the moment um, is a film, and I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it right now, but basically a couple uh, who went to Spain to get married just before lockdown and her mother came over as well to um, to stay with them, ready for the wedding. Well, then lockdown happened, and the wedding had to be cancelled. But they all had to stay in the apartment together for months. You've got the three of them there, and he's a filmmaker, so he he made a film about it. And the three of them act in the film, and they shoot it on his iPhone, and it's just fantastic. And you can make these kind of very sort of spontaneous and responsive works at the same time as making these incredibly expensive, complex, multi-layered, blockbuster, heavily CGI post-produced films. The breadth of expression that you can have through the medium is is fascinating. And of course, all of these new tools are coming up now with augmented reality and virtual reality that again offer new ways to kind of experiment um, and explore um, and I and I think you know we're going to see more and more practitioners who are able to sort of move between forms in really interesting ways. Theatre makers moving into feature films, moving into virtual reality, and vice versa. This kind of shifting and and moving. I think the other thing that's really interesting is the impact of video games, and you know we've seen it over the last sort of again decade really the sort of impact on filmic narrative that there's no sense that you've got to have this sort of linear narrative anymore and that's not that people haven't been experimenting with that for decades but in terms of the audience and in terms of a mainstream audience everybody's now very comfortable with moving across multiple time frames um, and multiple points of view and I think that kind of literacy is super interesting I think the other thing that is kind of an interesting trend right now is just the impact of social media, its ubiquity and the power of kind of propaganda slash fake news within that medium. Um, the need for interventions to be able to establish what truths could be, are, and again, the sort of sophistication of audiences to receive information on one hand and to receive it in a whole series of different forms through the different platforms that, that they explore, be it television, broadcast, be it Facebook. Um, but I think there's really interesting trends that are going to have to emerge around media literacy and how we navigate through this increasingly constructed world of media that we consume. Drawing the line between factual and fiction is hard these days. I think that there's going to be increasingly content, storytelling and activism, I think, in those spaces around those those issues. You raise a really interesting point, you know, news as entertainment, fake news as as content indistinguishable 
from Truth, all of it digitally um, available. And, you know, to the casual observer, it's all entertainment and it's all moving images. You have quite a challenge, I think, in picking through that. Can you even hazard a guess as to what your exhibits might look like in five or 10 years, given that you will, in five or 10 years, be reflecting what occurs in the intervening period? I mean, one one of the things we've been really focusing on is that in a world where we are dominated by these different platforms using algorithms to feed us content, you know, AI and machines are selecting and recommending to us constantly even they're even selecting which of our friends get through to us, you know, with their recommendations. You know, the role of the human curator is incredibly important. Selecting and cherry picking through and making those human selected juxtapositions of content to tell a story and take a visitor on a journey, I think, is so important. I think too, you know, now and going forward, the delight of being transported in a physical space is a fundamental human desire. So I think, you know, we certainly are moving away from a more formal way of exhibiting work and into a space that is much more theatrical and immersive, not just in the sense of digital immersion, but physical immersion and um, our Wonderland exhibition was probably the best example of that for us Um, and you'll see that continuing through our practice more and more. I mean, we're already planning exhibitions for the next kind of three to five years and, um, again, making sure that there is this, yeah, a, a kind of world that you're able to enter so that you can let go of reality, if you like, and and immerse yourself in these particular stories and perspectives that we're wanting to um, highlight and, you know, encourage your curiosity to engage in. And then, you know, what will be foundational for us and I think increasingly for museums um, around the world, um, and I use the museum for art museum and natural history museums or all museums, is this technology experience that really extends the visitor journey um, so that, that sense of being able to collect and keep things that you find interesting, that pique your curiosity, to then be able to go home and explore in more depth. I think, I think that's going to be a, something that most institutions uh, will invest resource in. And I think particularly too, if we, if we end up in a situation where restricted visits are ongoing, you know, where we're not able to have mass gatherings, for some years. I think that, again, that that sort of uh, ability to have a a shorter time in the museum um, or a kind of more focused time in the museum and then resource that extension from it is going to be super important. I've heard that before. It, it's getting currency, um, and not it's not just about being time efficient. In you know when when our when our physical contact and our ability to get around is rationed, which it is, um, but it's also about improving the depth and the impact of the experience when we're there. Because I think you know there's only so many hours you can spend walking around. There's only so much time, you know, um, you can dedicate to that, and yet. It seems there's not an institution in Melbourne that you could do justice to in a in a three or four hour spot. But and I love return visitors as we as we both do. But um, yeah, I think there's a lot in that. 
We love return visitors. You know, I mean, that's another thing about evolving is, is about that, that return visitation, um, which, you know, obviously you do through your temporary show exhibition and you do through your cinemas and those sorts of things. I mean, we, we always have temporary shows, but, but uh, you know, having a permanent show that evolves and then having an ability to keep that conversation going with the visitor, to keep being able to recommend and make those human curated suggestions because we know that you're interested in this. If you let us, we're going to tell you when, if you were interested in Cuphead, this video game, this absolutely beautiful video game that we'll be showcasing, you like the aesthetic of Cuphead and the way that it plays? Well, three years later, this artist has created this one. You should have a look at it. Now, be able to do that really targeted suggestions and help people discover things that they wouldn't otherwise find. You know, you're just not going to find these things in your algorithm. They are not going to turn up through Google. They're not going to come to you as a Netflix recommendation. It requires a museum and curators to be able to to find those different sorts of selections for you and, and to discover things that wouldn't come up, you know, in the same way that you got a myth each year to find a whole lot of films that will never come to Australia through cinemas. I mean, they just never will. You won't. You you might see a few of them on SBS on demand, but that's it. You know. So how do you connect with those films? How do you discover them? And it's that ongoing conversation year round um, with visitors that I think is so important. And um, you know, for Fed Square and for us, it's going to be all around the local visitor. It's all around Victorians <laughs> um, for the next few months. It always is about Victorians, of course, but you know even more so and and how do we how do we ensure that we really just have those great rich conversations with them people of all ages across victoria whether or not they're actually able to come in to the museum as regularly as they'd like you speak about museums and these trends these new ways of thinking and and um you know curation the work that only an institution can do to create the possibility for someone to generate their own journey um, and for it to be unique if you were to think globally would you reference yourself with another institution uh it doesn't have to be in the moving image you know do you see inspiration in other directors' ways in which they run their institutions? Well, constantly. And and I think what's interesting about being kind of uh, a bit of a hybrid, which I think ACME is, is that we, you know, we can get inspiration from so many different institutions. There's kind of nothing really like us. There, there's the Museum of the Moving Image in New York, a lot smaller than us. Um, they've got a beautiful collection, um, including the Jim Henson collection which is uh, so they've got a permanent um henson show on actually which is just great so they're, they're probably the most similar to us but i think they have about two hundred and fifty thousand visitors a year so we're much much larger and and the scale i suppose of what we're doing is bigger we've brought out two vna shows now we had um hollywood costume um but david bowie is um really was you know the vna started doing these very theatrical um, exhibitions uh, and that David Bowie is was a great example of that and we had we had that as our Melbourne Winter Masterpiece in 2015 that was very influential for us um, but we also looked to a whole range of different um, art forms uh, you know my personal background is in theatre um, and uh, the performing arts and I think there's a lot of um, 
inspiration in particularly the kind of um, site-specific performance where you're, you know, you again, as you were just saying, a, a visitor having a physical journey through through a space is something that I think is super interesting. The Academy Museum is going to open up in Los Angeles next year. They will be a very important partner for us going forward. We've already had a, num- you know, had a lot of conversations with them um, about, you know, curating exhibitions together and so on. Um, we work quite a bit. Um, Te Papa uh, in New Zealand, the National uh, Museum there, has taken two of our exhibitions and um, we talk a lot with Te Papa uh, and we think they're, you know, just a, a really wonderful museum with a lot to learn from. And art science in um, Singapore is a very interesting um, museum. You know, it's about the connection, you know, connection of art and science. Um, and they've taken two of our exhibitions as well. And they are very interested in that kind of immersive uh, experience. Um, again, telling a story that's quite um, very multidimensional, multi-artful, you know, from the historical to the contemporary to the very near future. So that that kind of overview, I think, and approach to form is something that, that we find really exciting. But, yeah, I mean, we, we, we talk to museums all over and, and visit as many as we possibly can. And it's really inspiring to be here in Melbourne with such fantastic peers as well around us um, and we learn a lot from you know museums victoria from ngv state library is i think you know really great for us to learn from and collaborate with but i think too you know it's quite nice just also doing our own particularly again slightly eccentric and <laughs> idiosyncratic form of of museum because it's a museum and the image is a new thing you know, it's not like a cinematech. It's it's a new thing, and in that sense, it's quite fun because you can invent it as you go along. And it it really has evolved a lot over the eighteen years of the life of the museum. We've touched a few times about the renewal. Let's let's talk about the renewal. I'm just coming up to a year here next month, I think. And uh, you know, when I got here, you were deep deep in the process. You'd closed in. April, perhaps, um, and the project was just getting going, and it was such. It is. It is such an exciting reimagining of such a critical part of the square. You know, the the three big pillars: NGVA, KHT, and Acme. You know, and I've been desperate to see what it is that comes out of this process. Tell us about the renewal. Yeah, well, I suppose Acme is this really unusual. Thing. Um, as I was saying, it, you know, as it was envisaged, um, it was a foundation uh, tenant of, of the square and it sort of gradually evolved and evolved. And about 15 years ago, it started putting on quite large exhibitions around, you know, popular entertainment, Pixar, Tim Burton, um, Hollywood costumes, uh, a range of shows which sort of really lifted the visitation. And in 2009, Acme had a sort of major renovation where it created a free permanent exhibition, which was Screen Worlds. And that really became the spine of the visitation for, for the museum. Um, you know, in the last full year that we were open, 650,000 people went to that exhibition alone. Um, and we had over one and a half million through the museum, which make us one of the most visited museum sites in the country. And I think with that permanent exhibition coming up to 10 years, it 
urgently needed to be reimagined and rebuilt. And as we sort of looked at the challenge of that, we realised that there was an enormous opportunity to extend beyond um, what ACME does and how it works as an institution. One of the big challenges for ACME has always been that we're a very vertical museum. We're across four floors. In the basement is our big temporary exhibition space, a thousand square metres. Then the next level where you enter from Flinders Street has got another couple of gallery spaces and the big free permanent exhibition. You then went up escalators to the next level where our restaurant was and our education spaces and then up another level to our cinemas. And it was quite hard to read that it was actually one thing particularly because it's unusual. Like, what is a museum is a moving image? If I've gone to the movies, why would I think that there's also an exhibition and vice versa? Because we're at such an unusual institution, it's difficult to get your head around what it is. So we realised that we needed to think about, A, becoming a, a museum that was more visibly connected across the four levels of the institution. B, we wanted to be an institution that was more responsive, that we were able to evolve and change more easily and, and reflect world of moving image. We also wanted to create a space that was more welcoming. Um, We realised that we wanted to invite people into our space and encourage them in the public spaces to dwell and spend time to not just come in and see an exhibition or see a film, but to spend time afterwards in a social space talking about what they'd seen, sharing those ideas with each other. It's, I think, a foundational purpose of any kind of cultural institutional festival. We also wanted to embed technology more deeply throughout the institution and really extend the opportunity for our visitors to engage with us before they came and visited us at the Physical Museum and then after to be able to continue that conversation through digital platforms. And that's turned out to be extremely prescient (laughs) given what's happened with COVID where I think one of the biggest changes we're going to see and certainly where we're moving to is that ACME is going to be both a physical museum and a digital museum. And those things will continue to happen in parallel forever. So our investment um, has enabled us to completely renew and extend, enlarge our free permanent exhibition. It's about 20% bigger. So it's now um, over 1,500 square metres of exhibition space, free to the public, very interactive, very theatrical. Um, It's highly designed. It takes you through a really wonderful journey that explores Uh, not just the final end product of making, but how you make things. And it sort of illuminates process in this very interactive way. We've spent a lot of time working with our Indigenous curators and with our Indigenous advisory group to really reflect the place that we're in and make sure that we're not only reflecting that we are on Aboriginal land, but also that First Nations practitioners in the moving image space are incredibly successful, influential and important voices in our screen industries. Um, And so we'll see that permeating through all aspects of the museum. We've also upgraded and updated our education spaces. We've taken um, our collections team, which were previously housed at the bottom of the Yarra building, actually, in in the River Room. We've decided we want to really highlight their work and that important act of preservation and collecting. Um, And so we're actually creating a media preservation lab 
in the Fed Square foyer, Fed Square level foyer, where you will be able to see people at work doing that important practice on a daily basis. We've created a new retail space, which is down on Flinders Street, um, which will become much, much more um, visible and I suppose illuminate and explain in a way what our museum is for passerbys. Previously, there was an event space there with black curtains, so you couldn't even see in, whereas now that's that's not going to be the case. Um, and we've also expanded our event spaces. We're also going to have a brand new cafe and restaurant um, and upgraded um, cinemas. So it's, it's a really sort of nose to tail, top to bottom transformation. It's very ambitious. And I think particularly the architectural uh, interventions, I think, just make the building a lot more coherent as a cultural institution of our kind. I think the programmatic interventions, um, really rich and engaging and complex. And then I think the technological and digital interventions are groundbreaking and really pushing, you know, how museums um, and how cultural institutions kind of harness these technologies to have a more complex um, and rich conversation with their visitors. You're really describing a brand new museum, really, built on the history of, of the old, but something that I know will bring millions of visitors to uh, when you open. Speaking of opening, it's hard to speak about opening without talking about COVID-19. How has COVID-19 impacted ACME? It's obviously been a, a huge thing for every single member of our, our society and, and every human around the globe. It's, it is an extraordinary time to be living through. For ACME, I think that we've been fortunate. Uh, we were already closed when the first lockdown hit, which meant that uh, I think a lot of the trauma that many organisations, individual practitioners, institutions like us didn't have because we weren't midway through doing what we do and having to just amputate it. And because uh, the constru construction has been critical um, and essential service, that's been able to continue. So we've really been able to continue that, that momentum. But we also had a number of programs we were running and uh, it's been exciting to see how our team has rallied and changed and pivoted is the word that we're all saying now but you know taken those programs and reimagined them for digital form and and we've been getting wonderful take up with with what has been a relatively small program we've increased uh, our web traffic by a hundred percent so that's that's been just uh, I think really rewarding I think longer term it, it will benefit us because we all know that that COVID is here for a significant time longer. And it has forced us all to change our habits, the way that we work, the way that we communicate, the way that we learn. And what we found is that programs that we had put on in ACME, so, so for example, Top Screen, we work with the Department of Education and screen a selection of the very best films that have been made by Year 12 students across the state. And we screen them in our beautiful cinemas and families, friends, schools come along and watch. Now, that couldn't happen this year, so we put them online. Well, normally we would have about a 1,000 people come through our cinemas. Over 4,000 people have registered to watch the screenings. So we're just seeing that that the access, the kind of reach, has really expanded by this kind of digital opportunity. And we're seeing that in terms of the industry programs we put online, the cinema programs we put online. And I think the big thing that we are learning that's going to change us going forward is that we, we won't stop doing these things in our museum. We, we 
we believe passionately in audiences coming together in a shared space to explore stories together. I think it's it's a fundamental purpose. But we can also add a simultaneous layer online. And I think that that, that will be where we're going. Um, with the new stage four restrictions, we have been slowed down considerably. Our staff were on site beginning to install objects. They're, they're now back at home. Um, there will be a small amount of building activity, but a very small amount. So that, that is going to slow us down, but that's the way it is. But I must say, I just look at what's happening across the creative industries. And, you know, people talk about different industries being disproportionately impacted by COVID. That's certainly the case with the, the creative industries. You know, it's interesting. So many artists, they're not casual workers as such, but they are in the sense that they work project to project. Um, and as such, so many of them have been ineligible for JobKeeper. Everyone's got a mortgage <laughs> or rent to pay, families to feed. It's made a, a sector that was never rolling in dough very, very vulnerable. So whilst I'm excited to see how artists are going to respond to this global crisis and the new ideas and the new stories that are going to come out of this, I'm also just so saddened by what they're having to deal with. and. They're resilient. People will find a way through, but a, but a lot of damage is being done. Yes, and I guess we both work in a space where, uh, you know, the creative sector and the visitor economy is sort of ground zero for the impacts of COVID-19. It started there and it's expanded, but it started there. And, you know, the point at which normality can be reestablished is probably the furthest away for that sector. I suppose you and I both and, and our respective organisations, at least we've got a very strong and supportive government and uh, and that's made the difference, I think, uh, to this point. And uh, you can see government working very hard, Creative Victoria in particular, working very hard with the sector, but no one expects that you can overcome the impact of the pandemic. So I think the challenge for us is to... Um, make sure our institutions and our facilities are, are better on the other side so that we can turbocharge the recovery. Couldn't the agree with comes. you more. I think as government agencies, you know, we're in an incredibly fortunate position to be in Victoria, particularly even even with Stage 4 happening now. I think, you know, and I think it's interesting, um, you know, we've got a government who understands the central um, importance of creativity and culture to our identity, to our economy, to our society, to social cohesion, all of those things. I, I think that that's an, an argument that's long been won here in this state. But I think that the role of, of agencies then and how the, the role that we can play in this immediate crisis in helping our community come back together is going to be so crucial with the sort of infrastructure that we have to to leverage um, with the, you know, staff that we have, those expert staff and the funding that we have to um, showcase and support practitioners. But I think the other thing is that as we all got trapped in our homes, what did everyone want? We wanted to talk about things. We wanted to listen to ideas. We wanted to watch stories. We wanted to listen to music. You look at the take-up of digital offers, you know, artists immediately going online and, this incredible kind of response from audiences. I think audiences understand that culture in their lives is is part of our lifeblood. It is so important to our health, to our mental health, to our, our ability to communicate. And, you know, when, when we're alone, when we're, or, or, you know, separated in the way we are, I think 
creativity and and those cultural moments in our lives are, are just writ large. And so I think for so many people, that's that's what we're really missing. We're missing going to a restaurant and sharing a meal. We're missing going to the theatre and seeing a show, listening to, you know, going to a concert. We're missing going to a museum or a gallery or sitting in our library. You know, we're missing those those intimate cultural experiences that we share and those big blockbuster mass experiences that we share. And let's hope we get back to them sooner rather than later. But, yes, it's our job, Xavier. It's critical to ensure that, that we are part of that recovery and so this is the other wonderful thing for us with our renewal project. You know, this is a $40 million project. We invest, it got we got our investment two years ago from the government, you know, and we are now sitting on this jewel of a new museum and it's fantastic. I know you've been inside and you've seen it. It is fantastic. And I'm so proud of what our team and what our colleagues, um, BKK Architects, Second Story, through our exhibition experience design um, collaborators, so many of the artists that we're working with, you know, the Indigenous Advisory Group. It is going to be fantastic. And I'm just so excited. Who knew that this investment, this jewel, would be, you know, ready? Well, who knew? And, in fact, um, no pressure on those um, broad shoulders of yours. No pressure, but um, ACME and your team is the spring um, that will burst forward to, you know, to borrow from Gallipoli, <laughs> another another Australian classic, you know, the spring that will burst forward on the reopening because um, it unwraps and it's ready and it's exciting and it's at Fed Square, which makes me even happier still. But as important as that piece is, and it's super critical, there's also the role you, you described, which is engagement and content and sustenance, you know, for the soul. Tony Elwood and I talked just a week or so ago in a podcast like this about digital engagement being so important, unlocking the collections, engaging people, enriching the experience, deepening the experience, something you need to do now, but something that will actually have a legacy going forward. And, and our, our colleague in Tom Mosby, our CEO of the, of the Curry Heritage Trust, also at Fed Square, the, the same insights, which is pivoting to digital, pivoting to accessible, not just accessible, but engaging and adding to the physical experience, which will return in, in time. Going back to the benefits of COVID-19, if there are any, what do you think is a positive that you'll take out of this experience uh, for ACME? Well, a huge positive has been the resilience of our team. It's really brought us closer together as we've been forced apart, interestingly enough. <laughs> Uh, and I think that story may be playing out in a lot of places, actually. I'm actually even finding, like, on my street, you know, the way we're working as a neighbourhood. Uh, it's very, very interesting. Yes, I think this notion um, around digital and that audiences have caught up with what the potential is. There were barriers to it. People were a bit reluctant about it. Oh, I don't know the technology. I, you know, I'd rather just go. You didn't even consider the possibility that are that watching a live stream could be a satisfying experience. I think that's I think that's completely changed. Uh, so I think that's really exciting. I think I think we will see much more reach and impact for our in museum experiences, um, and more take up. I mean, we've invested a lot of money in in our the digital experiences around a visit, and as I was saying before, the sort of pre visit and post visit experience. I think we're going to get substantially more engagement in those things because the audience is now ready. You know, there's not, we don't have to educate them. 
they're hungry for it. The other thing is we've learnt that working from home and flexible workplaces are a good thing. They they can be fantastic. As somebody who's, you know, a working mother, you know, I've worked the whole way through my, my two children and some of that part-time, you know, I know how important it is to have a flexible workplace and I think there's been a reluctance for many people to understand that working from home is an option. I'm not suggesting that working from home with small children who are homeschooling is a great option. I think that's very stressful and traumatic. But I think a more flexible workplace um, and a a workplace that can have all sorts of remote um, opportunities is going to be super important. New episodes of Anything But Square are released every Wednesday. And we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and sign up to our newsletter at fedsquare.com. Take care and we'll see you next Wednesday.